Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm your host, Paul, and today we are very fortunate to have Sid Shatridge Paul, who is the design systems engineer at GitHub. Welcome to the podcast, Sid. Hey, thank you. Nice to be here. So you're a design systems engineer, and we're going to be touching upon um, your uh, React Summit talk mm-hmm. that's coming up. You know, what, what are you going to be getting into there? But before we, before we get into the, the potatoes and, and gravy here, what is a design systems engineer for anybody listening that maybe doesn't spend a lot of time in the front end or, or wants to get into that? Is that like using component libraries and designing them, or is it designing the entire like repo structure like what level are we talking um i think all of it so it's a pretty pretty broad term for engineers who work in design systems and so i specifically focused on the component library side of it but then we have other engineers that do some some tooling some uh, token work some specific implementation like rails or react or uh, css so I'd say it's a broad term. Um, it's it's basically the folks who create artifacts of design systems. Gotcha. And so would an artifact be something like it could be the components or it could be mm-hmm. the supporting infrastructure that lets you quickly iterate and develop on those components. It could be both ends of the sticker. Because one of those one of those is very creative, you know, in your face front end, the other one is more like I don't know, a dev experience engineer. You're like almost yeah. SRE of the front end, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I think like right now I'm kind of working on both in parallel. And it's fun to kind of have also like some, I don't know, some experience with the tooling aspect of it, because there's a lot of things you can do in the back of the front end that informs what your uh, more creative side would look like. So I don't know, it's fun. It's fun to have have more breadth over it would you say that a lot of companies that have a healthy front end that you Mm -hmm. visit and and it's pleasurable to use and such is that type of end product usually a symptom of somebody doing work like you in the back end or you know it is it only for bigger groups and those types of settings that's interesting uh i think I think the kind of work I'm doing right now with like this, like a big design system team, you usually only see them in like companies with a lot of developers. So it's one way to go about it. But then I worked at smaller companies, which also had like good amount of polish and not, not the same level of structure or people contributing to it. So I guess what it comes down to is you need the right people who care about things at the right spot. Like if you have, People who really care about design and the tiny implementations making those decisions, then you'll get the right things. And when you have people who really care about infra doing that, you'll get that. It's when people mix and there's like big teams, that's when I feel like the quality kind of dips. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's just natural for human beings, you know. Um, so yeah, you're giving this React Summit talk. For, for anybody listening, it's going to be called Balancing Flexibility and Consistency in Component Libraries. Now, you're giving a talk, so you're automatically a pro at everything we're going to be discussing today to the max because you're giving a React Summit talk. It's pretty cool. Um, so one of the, uh, up the vein of thought of what you're going to be talking about, uh, 
integrating APIs and component libraries. What's the difference between an API and a component library? Because realistically, component library is expressing itself through what we could refer to as an API. So like, where do you draw that line of distinction? And what is what is this dance that we're kind of talking about with those two pieces interacting? Right. So I guess like depending on what, what framework or what implementation we're talking about, um, in this case, because it is React Summit, the API of components is the props that you use. So with how do you compose them with children? Or if you have some Boolean values, is label showing true, false, kind of, that kind of stuff. Uh, that becomes the API of your component. And the dance here essentially is how, how strictly controlled are those props? Or how strictly controlled is that API? Because that controls how much you can uh, how tightly we can control the design of it. So if you have a component, let me give an example that makes it easy. If you have a button component that has four variants, and then those pores are like your primary, destructive, uh, secondary, something like the common ones. And then inside of it, if you want to put an item, you either get an icon prop that is supported by the system, or you can't put it. Right, so that's one way of going about it. Like you can only put the icons we allow as builders of the button component, and they would look exactly like we want them to. That's the more strict API approach. The more flexible API approach is inside the button, the contents of the button. Um, we don't control it as creators of the button. You control it as the consumer of the button, and you can bring your own icon, make it whatever size you want, give it whatever color you want. So that's kind of the dancer where how we want to be strict in the sense that there is a design system. So there is a there's a brand. So every company kind of has this brand. We want it to look like it's a button interface of GitHub, uh, but we don't really want to come in the way of people just trying to get their job and ship the product. So that's that's kind of the dancer. So it's it's really like defining closely and uh, intentionally uh, what what that exposed sort of like landscape about the variability of those users of the components of the system. That's the API that you're referring to that um, yep. you kind of need to think through as a design systems engineer. Yep. Like in my talk, I talk about the spectrum of flexibility where you can create something super tight or you could create something super flexible. And there are component libraries that exist in both ends of those spectrum. And you kind of have to find out for your company and your culture and the kind of things you're trying to build, where do you lie on this spectrum? And that is the amount of flexibility that you want to have. It's very hard, but it's, it's, it's kind of rewarding to do. I mean, that's like, this is becoming apparently, as, a, as I'm talking to you, I'm seeing this is a people problem too. This is like understanding how are people going to interact with your thing. And the, and the interesting thing about this, it's not like you're throwing up a React library that like millions of people will use. It's different company to company. You're with a different group of people every time. So your design approach has to be different for you to do the best job possible. Yep, yep, totally. Um, and that's where it becomes slightly more subjective because um, when I'm building a new component, I tend to look at other companies, like whatever open design systems I can find. And I tend to look at how they do solve this problem. And a lot of times, um, the, their solution might not work for you simply because you're working in a different culture. 
like a, a team or a company where the design team has more control over what gets shipped and everything gets reviewed, like every pixel gets reviewed before it's shipped, that would have completely different API needs than a place which is more iterative and people can ship and iterate on it and eventually get to a correct spot. Because in those places, you don't really want to come in the way. And the last one is like pure open source, like something like Material UI or Chakra UI. They have no context of who is going to use their stuff. So they have to be the most flexible they can possibly be. I mean, that when you say reviewing every pixel, can you give me an example story about like what that culture was like and, and what you really mean with reviewing every pixel? Like, what did that review pro process look like internally? Yeah, so um, I think I'm not going to name them because it, it sounds negative, even though it's not. It worked really nicely for them. Um, I used to work at a company where before something gets shipped to users, a designer would sit next to you, look at every page, and kind of just open Figma on one side and your web implementation on the other side and just compare them. And every place that didn't match perfectly, they would ask for those changes. So there was like a back and forth between designers and developers um, before something got shipped. And in, in that case, the design system needs were very different because a bunch of times you would just have something uh, like a, if, it, if a component from the design system already has reviews on it, like a designer has approved it, has blessed it, then the developer can just use it and they know it's going to be fine because it's already approved. Um, and, and especially in that case, the designers didn't want developers to have a lot of flexibility because they didn't want to change something that has already been blessed by them because that opens the room for flexibility and then errors and then things going off brand. That was a very strict kind of a pattern there. They want it to be right all the time with, mm -hmm. right, because it has to follow what, they, what they're going for. So I, it, it also sounds like if you're designing in the smaller team where it's maybe not as, I guess we could call it the pixel by pixel approach, mm -hmm. your job as, as this design engineer is to offer speed, iterative, iterative speed, so more designs come out quickly and a creative landscape uh, where things can be done safely and and within some boundaries right within the system you're designing and the other one it sounds like you're more like working to make sure things are done correctly they're released predictably uh bugs can be tracked documented and found quickly so which one of those like lives in in, in the jobs that you've worked have you found more entertaining oh that's that's interesting because i think they're both coming from a good place um but this the first one that you mentioned, which is um, you kind of optimize the speed, but also put in the right building blocks so that people can actually have the same results. I think, especially now at GitHub, it's so big that most of the time I have no idea what people are trying to build using the components that I've built. Um, so I kind of just have to go with a level of like, here are all the right pieces for you to combine. And then I'm trusting people that they they want to do the right thing and they'll combine it in the right ways. So, but that's also part of it is also like the culture at GitHub, which is like it's iterative and you have to kind of trust people that they will do the right thing. And if they don't, then they'll find out and they'll fix it and there's like heaps of tests to take care of it. Um, 
but a lot of it is come a lot of it comes down to just trusting other people to make the right decisions so there's very gotcha. few locks and stuff and and you really enjoy that process of like just producing quickly and because i know there are some engineers that love engineering they love making mm-hmm. something as perfect as it can be and stuff um so you're more on the creative like i really like to make things iterative and and quick and with some guardrails and i guess if you don't know the immediate customers of what you're designing you're kind of put in the shoes of like a material ui core yeah yeah Yeah, we're closer to that than than to my previous job um but i think from an engineering standpoint it's still fun because i because i don't know what people will try to build with it um it's a hard thing to build like I'd say open open source library is harder to build than one where you control all the aspects and constraints of it. So we do have some constraints in place, but a lot of times I'm kind of trying to push myself into building those UIs that people might build. So there's a lot of guesswork, but there's a lot of intuition to it. So I, I like that part of it. Where a lot of the code I'm writing now is it has to be perfect so that people can be imperfect or more creative with it. Right, gotcha. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I know. I it it does make sense. It just sounds like such a uh experience heavy field. Like you really need to understand human behaviors about how these things are used in the wild to really be put in the type of shoes that you're in. Um to some extent, yeah. The good part is that these people also work in the same company. So if sometimes if you're stuck, you can just like ask them and have a call and say, "Please explain what are you trying to do." Right. That helps. So go, going, you know, we're on the vein of talking about your experiences and opinions here. What what's one of the situations you've seen where a design system was either implemented from scratch, you helped implement it, or like people started to really try to buckle down and use a design system component library, and it actually ended up hurting mm-hmm. speed and and company time. Yeah, I think I think this happens all the time. Like even so, at my previous job at Audzio, um, we started the design system from scratch. And one year in, I think half of the decisions that we've made, we regret making them. Uh, but that's kind of how most like component libraries or like design systems go, where you make some decisions with the knowledge you have at the time. And then as people use them, they start breaking your assumptions or they start extending the design system in ways you haven't thought of yet. Um, but then all of those are inputs back to your design system to improve it and try to cater to those cases as well. So it's kind of a constant thing where you make something you think it's good, you're proven wrong, and then you take that input and then you make something again, which now you think is good, only to be proven again, uh, proven wrong again in the future. So I think I've already had that once at GitHub. I've been there at six months, um, but I made something. I was really proud of it, and it worked really well for the use cases we supported. But then within a couple of months, people started bending and stretching it phase that makes the API look wrong and made me realize that they're further on the flexible side than I had anticipated. So that's also a tricky thing to develop that muscle when you're new to the company. Like you basically don't know what the culture is like when you join. What's an example, like just to dive mm-hmm. into specifics real quick. Yeah. Of 
how somebody bend and stretched the component or API mm -hmm. that you originally designed into a place where it wasn't so good or it broke. Okay, I have, I have the perfect example. And this is in my talk as well, where uh, we have a menu in which you can select labels and users. So think of like a pull request and you want to assign a reviewer to it. So, or a tag to it. So you go through a thing, it basically looks like a dropdown and you select something. Now, we wanted this to be very strict in how it looks because there's a bunch of things. There's uh, assignees, reviewers, milestones, tags, all of these things. And we want all of these menus to look very similar and have the same feel to them. So we created an API which was very strict. It had like an object shape to it. And then it passed all the internal tests of what it should do. But then when people started using it, they started bumping into things where it cannot have a checkbox because the way somebody was using it, you cannot have an input input type checkbox. It had to be an SVG so that it's accessible. So then we had to kind of change it and we shipped it for everyone. It seemed to work out. But then somebody was like, a description, we want to add description underneath. Sometimes it can be one line, sometimes it can be multiple. And then you're like, we didn't really anticipate this, so our design kind of breaks. So what we're going to do is give you like an escape hatch where you can say, here's the full menu, but here's my render item function, which will, everything else will work, but just the item you have full control over. And I think this is like, people call this inversion of control. Um, then there was groups and people wanted render group. So at some point of time, we basically had a shell of a component with three render X props on them. So you could customize the whole thing, uh, which doesn't sound bad, but then we kind of lost all control over it when it was fully custom. So then any consistency that we wanted, we didn't have control over it. And any accessibility features that we baked in, people kind of opted out of them by doing render item. Because suddenly anything that we baked in, you had to re-implement it in your custom implementation. So that was a sign that the API was completely wrong. And then uh, we recently rebuilt it in a more composable fashion. And now we're back to a place where people have more flexibility, but they don't break or they don't eject out of features. So it's still accessible and works pretty well. So, and you mentioned accessibility. So mm -hmm. the check, can, can you go into a little bit of detail? I'm just curious, <laughs> the, mm -hmm. like why the SVG and checkbox thing had a discrepancy there. Right. So, uh, so what we try to do is when you're importing a menu from the library, um, it should already have the right semantics. It should have role equals menu. Uh, the items in that should have role equals menu item. If it's selection, then it can't be menu item. It should be menu item radio. And all of these like super niche things about accessibility, most people don't know. And like most front-end developers don't know. So. It kind of, and like we have the luxury that we have accessibility experts on the design system team as well. So anytime I don't know anything, I can collaborate with them and we bake that in the component. But there are rules around it, which might not be so obvious. So uh, when you have a menu item, that is the focusable element inside your menu. If you put a input inside it, that's that's incorrect because then the screen reader doesn't really know should I focus on the menu item? Is that is the menu item radio the check markable thing, or is input type checkbox the check markable thing? So it kind of creates these conflicting ideas. Um, 
So, and initially we allowed people to put checkbox inside it only to realize that that's not the right way to do it. And we have to implement it, a selection mechanism on our own. And that's when for visual users, we use a SVG that has a checkbox because you want to show that something's checked without using a checkbox input element. Interesting. Uh, devils in the details. That's like, yeah, and, and this is this is why you can also see like how render I, something like a render item really scares me because all of this detail gets lost. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. So when you're designing a component like a drop-down menu like this and there's menu mm -hmm. items and such, is using things like a hard-coded marginal offset, for example, to give like a little mm -hmm. bit of white space, how often do you like hard-code values versus like have them dynamically adjust to client dot get bounding wrecked and nudging things around by percents and stuff? Like I'm, I've always been curious from like, mm -hmm. you know, you're 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 the pros of the pro. Like how how do you guys do it? Oh, so both. <laughs> In like inside the menu, there's there's margins that are using like district margins that you cannot override because we want to have a say on what the spacing looks like. Uh, but the actual position of the menu is like a is like a whole I don't know. I've recently had to touch that file. It's like a hundred line long logic, which <laughs> kind of like looks at where the button is and where to place the menu, and then if the menu is going out of bounds of your window, then it tries to adjust it. Uh, there's like preference on should it be left aligned or right aligned. And if the user wants it to be right aligned, but there's no space on the right, then it switches to the left. There's like a bunch of logic that is like, right. it's like it's very hard to read, but luckily there are tests around it. So it's, it's not that scary anymore. I mean, that those weren't, that's that type of interaction, some of the stuff that's always amazed me when you go use professionally designed website mm -hmm. and your brain it knows where all the buttons are it knows yeah. what to expect like the menu is going to look like this and but when you use it it can mm -hmm. be in a bunch of different places like i i'm a data, big data dog user right and so there i mm -hmm. go into my server view and like all these crazy menus are like shrinking yeah. and contracting and i'm like this is a living breathing document that's like growing at yep. every millisecond it's 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 really wild to wrap your mind around how much diff and corner checking log logic is really going on to make that sort of presentation possible yeah um, yeah data log is a good example because it's very dense as an interface dense. <laughs> yeah. and th those are usually like the harder ones like with github.com it's it becomes very dense in some place like the pull request page is very dense um and then when you're building something like a menu you just have like, you should look at like the kind of stories I have. There's like one story for each weird combination that it can come in. And you're just hoping that somebody doesn't find a case which you didn't think of, which they always do, of course. Of course, yeah. Yep. 
I'm sure the amount of ways that somebody ends up implementing it. When you first got into this job, were you like mm-hmm. amazed at like how difficult it was to actually like estimate and think about that human behavior of what you were designing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I came from from place where I was building components for like a single use case. Where like building a product, you know, this component is only used in this one page, so you know everything about it, and just when you zoom out one level on top where this component can be used anywhere in the product, the permutations are just like exponential. Like it's just blowing up so much that you can you can just try to do your best and you can like I wouldn't say like stress test the thing. Like every time I'm building a new component now, I think I spend a day building the component and like five, six days just like poking and trying to make it fail and trying to document it the right way. So there's a lot of time that goes like just making sure it's good. I mean, documentation itself takes forever because mm-hmm. it's really difficult to write something for another human that's not working on what you're working on. Cause you really need to like, think about, I, I'm in their shoes. Yeah. Documentation takes a while. I can imagine when you're writing in a whole API for thousands of components, it's a monster of a task. Um, yeah. uh, the good part is that it's, a- you only have to do it one component at a time. And right. I think what works for me is writing the documentation first, because then I don't really know how will I implement it. I only know how somebody would want to use it. So I write the documentation from a point of view, like this is how I would wish it works. And then I try to make that happen. Gotcha. That almost reminds me of like test driven driven development. Yes. You define the API first mm-hmm. and then you go implement it. So when you're designing these components and you're cooking up this API, you're you're, like you said, you're doing one component at a time. So like once you're 20 components in, how do, how are you remaining consistent? How are you getting the same mojo going that you had on day one? Like, are you working with a team of Adobe illustrator fanatics that are like, listen, this is our vision. This is how it's all going to work. And then you're like, okay, I can take this and implement. Or are you really just driving that whole steam engine forward yourself? Um, so, the, so the team is big. There's like 20-ish people, maybe more now, um, that work on just the design system. And out of that, the five of us work on just the React component library. And then we're always collaborating with the designers, with the CSS folks, with the Ruby folks. Because that's the other part which which is hard. Uh, the API shouldn't just align in a single library; it should also align across implementations. And I wish there was like the spec was clear from the start. But a lot of time we're making up the spec as we go, which means that consistency is like uh, we're always chasing it. It never feels like we can touch it, we can grasp it. It always feels like it's three steps ahead of us and we're chasing it. Uh, but I think some things that we've started to do recently have helped where we, we've started writing patterns of API. And every time you see a case that you've already solved before, that one becomes easier. And that's also true for like using the component library because it makes it more predictable. You can kind of guess the API. So if you've used the button component, and now you're in the menu component, each menu item uses a similar API to the button that you're already used to. 
So then you kind of start guessing, or you see a similar prop and you see that, okay, I used it this way and maybe it works the same way. So that's kind of the holy grail of it, where when you see a prop, you should be able to guess how to use it and you try it and it works and you move on. Like if you never have to read the documentation, that's, that's how we know we're doing a good job. What about like uh, the actual look of what you're making, and and, mm -hmm. and not just the API. Maybe maybe you're like more settled in the React side and the API and how it like that is all put together. But in terms of the actual design vibe of what's going on, like let's say there's yeah. a team of ten people and they're making a little product, a SaaS product, and they want to they you know they don't have a design engineer, but they want to design and they want to design consistently. What are your advice to them? on how to follow suit with that desire. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think the 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 philosophy or the ways you would go about it are similar where you want to define rules for yourself. So we kind of did this at uh, Code Sandbox. Before this I used to work at Code Sandbox, very tiny team when I joined. Um, but we wanted to have the same benefits of having like a giant design system. So a bunch of work that I did initially there was just sit with the designers and kind of make these tiny building blocks where what does our text look like? Every time we want to show a text, what is the exact color? And then if it has to be subtle, what is the exact color of that? And then you kind of start baking these decisions in. So the next time you're creating anything which requires text, you're like, oh, I'm just going to pull in the text component there. And then we have like a Figma sheet which has all the variations. And you're always trying to sync the uh, output from Figma into your components so that anytime you're designing something new, you're like, oh, I'm just going to, this text needs to be a little subtle. So I'm going to use text with the override of subtle. And that would mean the same in design and code. So I think, I, I mean, we've tried to do it with just two people working on this actively, and it got us a little far, not, not very far, I'd say. Um, but I think that's the way to do it. You make some decisions and you start baking them in as variables so that you can reuse them instead of trying to do it over and over. So it's you sit down with your team or your designer, you really mm -hmm. flesh out what the ground rules are, mm -hmm. and then you try to abstract those ground rules into variables that you can interchange in your code. So like realistically, what I it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm, I'm picking up that I can go into Figma or wherever our components are later, tweak, adjust, or whatever, and it should all propagate downstream effectively. Um, to, to yes, either either all automated or with some manual intervention. What, what, what yes, changing everything? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking in Material UI, it's mm -hmm. one of the best things when, like, I use you know topi topography for everything. Yeah. You use oh subtitle heading or whatever, and then you go to your theme.js and you change it. And it's awesome <laughs> when everything mm -hmm. just works and it's there. That's a good feeling. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So what do you think about people who use pre-existing component libraries, like the material UIs of the world? The uh, On your page, you have a React library that uh, you know you were working on. Mm -hmm. um, but, like if you were making a website, would you immediately opt for one of those or would you try to design from scratch and say, okay, like this is a whole new like little micro SaaS thing yeah. I'm making. So it's going to be a new vibe. I'm going to start from scratch. I think I think I rarely start completely from scratch. I always bring in something. Um, it depends. So, for example, I almost never use something like Material UI 
because it has a lot of opinions that I would either have to override or I'll have to replace and build my own things. Um, so a lot of times I end up picking something which is more unopinionated or more unstyled. So something like, uh, like I was working on React UI, the one you referred to, which doesn't have a lot of opinions of its own. And then there's uh, Stitches, which is like that. Oh, it's not Stitches. It's called uh, Radix UI, which is built on Stitches. And there's a few libraries like that, which have very, very little op design opinions. So I try to start there and then try to customize and put my own design opinions there. But that's me, right? Like I, this is what I enjoy. I like poking around the details. Um, if I had to build a product and get it out there for testing it with users and the design didn't matter as much, I'd pick something else. I'd pick somebody else's opinion, like Material UI or Chakra UI. So I don't think it, there's, there's anything wrong with either approach. I think it goes to what skills do you already have the team and what's important at your stage right now. But if you're consistently trying to override things in material UI, that's probably a telltale mm -hmm. that you should be using something different. Yeah, yeah, true. If if you already have design opinions that you want at this stage, then don't don't use something that already has them or customize it. Like uh, material UI has a pretty good customization layer. So custom, they sit do. down, customize it, and then start using it. There are some things in material UI, though, that are a huge pain in the ass to override. I have found in my experience, like there's some shadowing and, and, and you know, mouse pointer either being mm. ignored or, or stuff that's just like, ah, it, it's really annoying. You have to throw in a bunch of crazy, or in my opinion, yeah. <laughs> not being no, an no. HTML person. It's the crazy CSS stuff of all the explanation point important things mm. everywhere to actually get working what you want to work. Yeah, no, you're right, totally. It's like the theming layer is always the easiest, but the moment you want to customize behaviors, then it's like a whole different kind of, I don't think we have a nice way of customizing behaviors where how should a cursor behave or how should the, which direction should the menu open from? Those right. kind of details are very hard to do like from the outside or make them configurable. I, well, I don't think we have a nice way of it, CSS does have some support for this, but it's not inherently mm -hmm. like object-oriented paradigm. So it's, it can be mm -hmm. like difficult to scope and subclass like things of behaviors and, and and stuff, which would be cool to see. I'm sure there's something out there. So like there, there's probably something that like lends itself to much heavier object-oriented like CSS. And um, I don't know if you've ever used something like that. I've I've seen some implementations of it, but what I've like walked away from them is like. It's, it's way too hard to customize them. <laughs> yeah. like you have to know a lot to be able to get exactly what you're going for. And sometimes the time it takes to configure, you might as well build something of your own. So there's always yeah. that battle. And then, and then if you don't use a crazy object-oriented library for CSS, somebody can then pick up your project in the future and have an easier time onboarding. So what's the point, yep. <laughs> I guess, yep. is hacked up. So one last thing I'd love to touch on. I watched one of your other podcasts, which um, was pretty entertaining for for me. You had a you had a great microphone. Your voice was coming through nice and crisp. <laughs> it was great. Uh, but you were talking about animations, and I love animations. I think they really make a website pleasurable to use. And they get a. It's like a weirdly opinionated topic. Mm -hmm. Animations. There are people who like love them and hate them and don't use them at all and use them way too much. So 
as a professional design systems engineer yourself, like what's your take on animations and how they're currently used today and how you use them? Um, I think we, we grossly underuse them across the web. Like very rarely do I see a website that's using them tastefully. And I think that's the hard part with animations like, or motion in general. That it's it's very easy to go from this is useful to give context to this is now just whimsical and it's trying to be funny. And there's there's like a I don't know, I'm sure there's like rules and people study animations and motion and there's you know constraints that you should learn. I don't know them. So I kind of just go by my taste of what looks good. And I imagine a lot of people also don't study the same things. So it's very hard for us to graphs what is good. I think this happens with design as well. Like a lot of developers are really good at building components, um, but they, they haven't studied design in the same way that designers would have. So they have a hard time struggling with what looks good and what doesn't. So when they design something, it doesn't come off as good, even though they're trying the same. I think motion and animations are like even further down that line where it gotcha. can be really useful when done right, but it's rarely done right. Do you think that there's like a tool out there or, you know, like for, for design, there's just salts rules, you know, like, mm -hmm. is there something similar for animation, whether it be a library or like a set of practices or paradigms that, you know, you've looked at that you've found helpful? Yeah. Personally, for me, I've kind of really enjoyed uh, physics based, like spring based animations. So for example, framer motion or remotion, there's a few of them. Uh, they all use spring-based animation. And that just like that structure of thinking about your animation and like how much weight should it be makes a lot more sense to me. Because then I can think of how far is something animating. Like if it's just a switch, a switch that goes on and off, the distance is very small. So the speed of it needs to be a little slow, versus if there's an overlay that opens on the whole page, like a modal or something. That's a lot of pixels that are traveling. And if they travel at the same speed, it would look sluggish. They so want them to be faster. And just thinking of it in like weight of the component and how much speed it should travel in kind of makes it easier for me to make something that looks decent. Because um, I can't think in like seconds, how much seconds should it take or what's the Bezier curve? Like I, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. And it's funny, too, because a Bezier, I mean, if we go back 10 years, if mm -hmm. I animated anything, you had to kind of get in with the Bezier curves or 15 yep. years ago. You can still see them in the developer tools. You can look at the curves and how things are animated. But yeah, why touch that? <laughs> so uh, you said, uh, what were the two libraries you mentioned? Framer and... The Springer Motion. Framer Motion. And the other one, I want to say it's just React Motion. Yeah. And do those and are these libraries? Do they have would like healthy APIs that you think help orient your thinking towards how to use animations effectively? For me, yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. There, there was a bit of a learning curve because you like we don't interact with springs a lot, so we don't really I, have a sense of like how much weight or how much like friction is there in it. Um, but once yeah, you get past that. It, it, it feels a lot more complex than, but you don't have to know all of it. I would say like, you only need to know like 5% of the physics to kind of get into the zone of what is easy to manipulate and what is 
what will give you the direction that you want. No Maxwell's um, equations. No Maxwell's equations, thanks for <laughs> Then they didn't like it. Uh, but yeah, I think there is a bit of a learning curve, but after that, it's a lot of fun. Nice. So yeah, Framer Motion. I, I, I saw it on your other podcast and it looked really simple to use. Um, mm -hmm. I've used GreenSock before, which is like super pleasing because some of their APIs are very rich, um, but a little confusing. So that one just seems like way easier. I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, damn, we're already at 40 minutes. That time flew by. Um, so to close out, Sid, like, is there any resources that you'd want to throw? Like, what if you have a Twitter, what's your Twitter? So our listeners can come lis uh, listen to you and follow you anywhere else or any shout outs you want to give? Sure. Um, my Twitter is Siddharth KP. You just have to find it in the in the description below because it's hard to spell. Gotcha. And I guess that's it. Um, check out Primer. That's the design system that I'm working on these days. It's all open source. There's a lot of, it wouldn't make sense if you're not GitHub, um, but there's a lot of things that you can steal and copy and get inspired by. What was the name of that again? Uh, Primer. So that's uh, primer.style is the website. Primer.style. Great. Okay, Sid. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on and talking about I like the candy shop and, and what's all behind the engineering of it, of front end and the things powering our websites. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to PodRocket. You can find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.